my bookstore is open. It's about time. Everything that we've so far stocked upon the shelf is either my own original publication or literature which has greatly inspired my own research. There are already several books available for purchase and a great many more being worked on. I'm particularly excited to premiere a restored names edition of the Aramaic Targum, putting Yahuwah the Most High Elohim back into the Lord God. But then there are the volumes of extra canonical literature which are already being put out, each of which comes from my own personal collection, is sectioned off by genre, and has been likewise edited so that names of its key players might be restored to health. And let's not forget the one you were all hoping for, Millennial Kingdom plus Mudflood. The wait is over. One of the ways you can support this ministry is by picking up your very own copy. I do appreciate your generosity. Shalom. As a researcher and a writer, I made a blunder in so much that I didn't quote all of my sources. Those of you familiar with my work know I love responding to quotes and snippets, snippets of information. That didn't happen so much this time around. What really struck me, though, is how everyone in Messiah's circle was essentially related to him, mostly. And since we're talking about a king and his kingdom, that only makes sense. You, you'll see more what I mean as we go on. Now, I say sources because I will be accused of falling prey to RCC mythology. And perhaps I am. I don't know. There are actually other churches fighting for ideas. Uh, Orthodoxy and the Brits are two of them. A lot of these sources that I was finding for tonight's uh, paper, for this presentation, were actually coming very early on in the church. And I found that these sources were quoting even older sources that were either scrap, uh, scrapped or scrubbed. I mean, we don't have them anymore. We know they're sourcing from something, but we don't have those books. We don't have those texts. We, we don't know what happened to them. What I also found is that there appears to be less and less of an emphasis on family the later you get in history throughout as the sources develop, you, you pull less and less and less away from all the disciples were related to Yahusha and so on and so forth. Some of these sources, which again appear to be quoting older sources, don't show up for hundreds of years. But I've said this time and again, they've stretched the years out. And I could, I could give you a really quick example of, of how they do that. Take First Clement, for example, or Revelation. Now, we've been going over both of those in this group, and the scholars will tell you that First Clement and Revelation were written in the 90s AD. 
90 at least. So anywhere from 25 to 30 years after the temple was destroyed. This is what they tell you. Well, I we did a very good job, I think, of showing how there's no way Revelation was written after 70 AD. It was written somewhere around 64, 65, 66 AD, maybe even earlier than that. The same thing with First Clement. We're going through that, and I am showing that as he is writing this book, the temple still stands. The Levites are still serving as priests. I don't know where they're getting this information that it was written 30 years later. I also heavily speculate that the two wars of the Jews may be one event. The first happened in, you know, 66 to 70, I think it maybe went to 72, 73 AD or something like that. And then you see the next in the second century. I think they're the same event. There's almost nothing going on in the record books for a couple hundred years in Christianity. They don't know what was going on. There was nothing. They, so what they've had, they had to stretch all this out. They had to take books that were written in the 60s and say, well, no, we're going to stretch this up to the 90s. There are saints that I was looking into, you know, according to the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church. And when you're looking at when they were born and they died, they're like, well, maybe they were born in the late first century or maybe the third century. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't know if this guy was born in 70 AD or 270 AD. You have no clue. That would be like if if nobody knew if my birthday was, uh, you know, July 1776 or July 1976. And that's what we're dealing with. We're seeing how they're taking these um, these events in history and they're stretching it out to make it more, you know, reasonable to their preferred timeline. I think that's what's happened. So with that, we're going to start tonight. This is called Cities of the Millennial Kingdom. This is something I've been wanting to investigate for a very long time. And it actually took some turns that I wasn't expecting. That's usually how these things happen. Originally, I envisioned this to look very, very, very different than it is now. Maybe I'll go back to that and resource some of that information. But here it is. Cities of the Millennial Kingdom. This is like a 30-something page read. and the idea for this, this is not a finished project by any means. The idea for this is to track down all the different millennial kingdom cities, particularly in Europe, the Mediterranean area, Russia, and see, or even all the way to India, and seeing if, there, if you can track any of the apostles or the 70 who went there, which is kind of an interesting notion. So with that, let's go ahead and get started you can see that this was published on june 30th 2022 which just so happens to be today's date this is fresh the, the ink is still drying this is hot off the press all right the resurrection them bones and emissaries of the kingdom the vatican is built directly on top of kifa's grave and isn't that interesting they even call the place where the pope resides saint peter's basilica as if that's not suspicious. Truly, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. I lay there on the pillow, tossing this way and that, asking myself such questions as, where did Kepha reside while Yahusha reigned upon the earth? And also, was the place we call the Vatican it? I know, right? Good luck sleeping tonight. I mean, side note here, guys. Somebody was in that building. And I don't believe it's what they're telling us. And yes, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. If you're thinking what I'm thinking, that is. I, <laughs> I think we're on the same page this time around. There is, perchance, a symbiotic relationship to be had between the resurrected soul and the land. 
Kepha ministered, suffered, and died for the sake of Yahushua's gospel and Rome, all of the above. And so it is by no means a stretch of the imagination to assume that he ruled from there as well once the kingdom was brought into full effect. That should be cause for another thoughtful glance at St. Peter's Basilica again. Seriously, have you seen the inside of that place? The outside, too. The entire place is glorious. Try not to get distracted by the idols. They can easily be explained by the inheritors tasked with repurposing the joint. It's also why I'm asking that you not let the evils of Rome dampen your spirit. St. Peter's Basilica is fit for a priest, no? And I haven't even begun to examine any other neighboring buildings or places in the same city. At the end of the day, we are given two options. Either the sons of darkness built this place, or the sons of light did. I have made up my mind about the reality of Yahushua's kingdom upon the earth, and so I leave it up to you to decide. But the bones, you tell me. The Roman Catholic Church sponsors regular displays of Kepha's bones. There are the purported bones of other apostles and various backwater churches as well, all over the plain. I won't hunt them all down now, but you and I know they're accounted for. Not to mention the thousands of remains in crypts and catacombs. I will even throw one more your way. A basilica in a medieval town named St. Maximin Le Saint Baum. Baume, I'll never get French right. It's the most beautiful language on earth. I'll never get it right. In the Var region in the south of France, claims to hold the skull of Miriam of Migdal. She is secured in a golden idol, too, as if that's not creepy at all. And anyways, what of them? Let's say, for sake of argument, that the bones of the apostles really are held on display by our Roman controllers. Again, so what? That doesn't disprove anything. The resurrection happened with or without their fleshly bodies. I've got scripture to prove it. Starting out, here's what Shaul has to say on the matter. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of Elohim. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15.50. I thought to include the first epistle to the Corinthians, knowing there is a great deal of Shaul fans out there. You see, I'm being considerate and trying to think of my audience, despite claims to the contrary. Shaul couldn't be any clearer on the matter. Flesh and blood could not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Case closed. He then re-emphasizes the point being made, dating it again, but in a slightly different way, hoping his argument isn't missed. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Theoretically, Miriam Abigdal might walk into the room and declare, look, it's my skull in a creepy golden idol. That's how the resurrection works, according to Shaul. Not that I'm convinced for a single moment that her actual skull is on display in a sleepy southern French village. It's just, if our controllers were capable of digging it up, then you know they would. What better way to pull our attention away from the greater reality that she is already raised into incorruption than to have us worship her corruptible former self in the Vatican's kingdom of dirt. Another thing I realize is that the room is divided on Shaul. Much of my reading audience grows dizzy whenever I bring him up. You should know then that he and Yahusha agree this time regarding the resurrection. 
Here is how Messiah put it in the Gospel of Yochanan. Amen, amen, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Amen, amen, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of Elohim and they that hear shall live. For as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of Adam. Gospel of John 5, 24 through 27. Before one can attain the resurrection, everlasting life is dependent upon two qualifiers. The person who hears the words of the son must also believe on the one who sent him, our father in heaven, Yahuwah, the most high Elohim of Yasharel. It's all inclusive within the gospel of the kingdom. You will have to forgive me. I get excited whenever I come across another reference or another cross-reference to Revelation 14.12, which just so happens to be the theme verse of my entire ministry. Accordingly, the perseverance of the set-apart is defined by those who keep the testimony of Yahushua and the commandments of Elohim, which is precisely what Messiah is saying here. It's difficult indeed to believe on Yahuwah, the giver of Torah, and still pursue a theological career in lawlessness. The requirements are given. Let's not get distracted, though. Yahushua says the hour had already arrived when the dead would hear his voice, at least some of the dead, and rise. That very scene is detailed for us in the Gospel of Nicodemus. The righteous in Sheol did hear his voice, beginning with Yahushua's baptism in the Jordan River, and very soon he would visit them. No time to flesh this out again. You can read that report for yourself in Adam's Return to Paradise or watch the YouTube video. Summing it all up into one or two sentences, the Ruachs of dead souls ascended to paradise without ever revisiting their mortal bodies. Therefore, if the opportunity should present itself that they revisit the earth again, they would have no need for their bones being spiritually resurrected already. Presently, the flow of thought in Yochanan is that the Father has life, and that the Son has been given life within himself. Bookmark that. With, <clears throat> within himself. Makes sense. Seeing as how Proverbs 6.23 tells us, For the commandment is a lamp, and the Torah is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Lawlessness brings darkness and death, whereas Torah brings life, and Yahushua is Torah made flesh. Therefore, the Son has been given authority to execute judgment and grant life to the sons of Adam because he has also become a son of Adam, and there is no darkness or death in him. Messiah's same teaching is rehearsed in the Gospel of Philip. This is what we read. Those who say that Adonai first died and then was resurrected are wrong, for he was first resurrected and then died. If someone has not first been resurrected, then can only die. If they have already been resurrected, they are alive, as Elohim is alive. The Gospel of Philip 21. What Philip is saying is that the resurrection is not some sort of reanimation. Our bones go into the ground and stay into the ground. It is Rome who tore their bones from the flesh, and they can keep them. Perhaps Shaul is the one saying it, but Yahushua and Philip certainly agree. Messiah invites us to follow him by awakening in this life to what does not die. 
If somebody evades death by ascending to paradise, it is only because they have already attained life. More bones. The scene before us is Syracuse's catacombs, which can be found directly below the Capuchin Monastery in Piazza Capuccini. Capuccini. On the outskirts of Palermo. For In case you're curious, that's Italy. I can only assume we are gazing upon the mummified remains of Christians from a bygone era rather than pagans, but who really knows? As the forensics of a pagan and the set-apart as the or let me repeat that as the forensics of a pagan and the set apart goes we are furthermore informed that the christian catacombs under rome have been conveniently exercised of their bones we are told for tour purposes we'll let that one slide though the point behind this exercise is to show that any one of these mummies may very well have a living spiritual counterpart so long as their resurrection happened before their death scripture tells me so here are some more structures that you might find in Rome. Clockwise, starting at the top, San Giovanni Laterano, a.k.a. the Cathedral of Rome, Santa Maria Maggiore, and the Parthenon. Why must our eyes keep getting assaulted with the obelisk, always photobombing us? Oh, well. Leave it to our Roman controllers to let us in on who they truly worship. Their penises, for one. They worship those among other deities getting back to my main point though they are all likely millennial kingdom structures the former resident of these magnificent structures is probably impossible to tell but in a little while i will drop a few names for your consideration you see what finally occurred to me is that the most concentrated collection of cathedrals and palaces could be found within the embrace of europe don't get me wrong Residue of the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah can be found everywhere on the earth. Travel as far east as India, and you will find remnants of it. Even America has its fair share of old world cities. Italy, though, France, and Britain in particular. The case I hope to make from here on out is that there appears to be a connection between the locations where each set-apart individual lived, ministered, suffered, and died for the gospel of the kingdom, and then where they served, after their return to Earth. But North Africa and the Middle East, you will tell me, residue can be found there as well. I get your point, though. Hopefully you have figured out by now that I don't have all the answers. All I can tell you is that Europe was a happening place at one time, from the looks of things. For the most part, I think I know why. There are specific pockets of the world that embrace Yahushua HaMashiach as their Adonai and Savior faster than anyone. Others, not so much. We can thank the apostles in the 70 for their concentrated effort. You already know about the 12, but there were another 70. Here is where we read about them. After these things, Adonai appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Gospel Luke chapter 10. Pause. Some translations claim there were 72 whom Yahushua appointed rather than 70. That is because the NIV and others are employing the Codex Sinaiticus rather than the Texas Receptus. King James as well as the Sefer employ the Old Text, which falls in agreement with Genesis. 70 is an important number in his story. 
I would argue that 200 is the dominant number now, seeing as how the Watchers have been released. But before the Millennial Kingdom, the 70 Elohim were still ruling over humanity. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 11. And Yahuwah said, Behold, the people is one, and the language of all of them one, and this they have thought to do. And now they will not be restrained from doing whatever they imagine. The context here, of course, is the Tower of Babel. And Yahuwah said to the 70 angels who would stand before him, Come, we will descend and will there commingle their language, that a man shall not understand the speech of his neighbor. And the word of Yahuwah was revealed against the city, and with him 70 angels having reference to 70 nations, each having its own language, and thence the writing of its own hand. And he dispersed them from thence upon the face of all the earth into 70 languages. And one knew not what his neighbor would say, but one slew the other, and they ceased from building the city. Genesis 11, 6-8, the Targum. The 70 Elohim make their first official appearance at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Sometimes they're referred to as shepherds, and others, as in this instance, they are simply angels. I might argue that this particular entourage of Elohim were created on the second day, precisely when the firmament was being formed, whereas uh, Yahuwah's greater collection of angels came about on the first day. That's a study best served at another time, though. Point is, Yahuwah divorced humanity at Babel, choosing to create his very own set-apart nation of Yasharel, and offered these Elohim in his stead. That's actually pretty crazy to think about. In commissioning the 70 emissaries, Yahushua was telling the 70 Elohim that the judgment inferred upon them in Psalm 82 was right around the corner. The world was his inheritance, and at the kickstart of his kingdom, they would expire like mortals, continuing. Back in Luke again. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, El Yahuwah of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs amongst wolves. Carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the sons of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And uh, health the sick that are therein. I feel like that's a, mistrans a misprint, but... Uh, and say unto them, The kingdom of Elohim is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of Elohim is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Gospel of Luke 10, 2-12 There is slightly more to Yahushua's message, but that seems like a good place as any to stop. What Messiah is saying is there would be households as well as cities who brace themselves for the coming kingdom. And then there would be entire cities that did not. We have already seen what happened to those places that rejected his kingship. A fervent heat came upon them. Yahushua said it would have been more tolerable in that day for Sodom. 
We know them today as melted cities or castles and so on. Contrarily, the point of this paper, as you will know by now, is to take a closer look at the cities which held onto their butts like the people in Nineveh and repented. Well, seems to me that Rome was one of them. I'm not exactly sure how far the 70 emissaries spread out before Yehusha's crucifixion. It is only their dispersal at the hands of Shaul, which remains certain. And we read this in the book of Acts, chapter 8. And Shaul was consenting unto his death and at, uh, of death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the called-out assembly, which was at Yerushalayim. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Yehud and Sh uh, Shomeron, except the apostles. So they all scattered except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Shaul, he made havoc of the called-out assembly, entering into every house and uh, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. The Acts of the Apostles 8, 1-4. through So Shaul also should be thanked. As the Great Commission did not come about until everybody's favorite apostle wreaked havoc upon the assembly of the set-apart. The date of their scattering is typically estimated to be 34 or th 35 AD, but that is only because the crucifixion of Yahusha is estimated to be 33 AD and they are adding one or two years in their math. Exactly. The good old number 33. Freemasons want their own personal Jesus. Sounds suspicious if you ask me. The Talmud doesn't agree with that date either, and for once I'm willing to agree. The Jerusalem Talmud pushes the crucifixion of Yahusha three years earlier when stating the following. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin was banished from the chamber of hewn stone and sat in the trading station, Shabbat 15a. The Sanhedrin were banished because an earthquake had destroyed the chamber of hewn stone. It happened 40 years before the temple's destruction, and the year they tell us is 70 AD, which pits us smack dab in 30. The earthquake is a result of Yahusha hanging from the tree, telling us that the Sanhedrin's very last meeting resulted in the murder of the son of Elohim. The Babylonian Talmud gives even further confirmation. Forty years before the temple was destroyed, the gates of the Hekel, holy place, opened by themselves, until Rabbi Yohanan B. Zekai rebuked them, the gates, saying, Hekel, Hekel, why alarmest thou us? We know that thou art destined to be destroyed. That comes from Yoma 39b. The incident being referred to is the same which would see the curtain torn in two, thereby verifying that the earthquake was also the very event. Yahushua was crucified precisely 40 years before the temple's destruction, not 37. A nice round judgment number. The scattering event being talked about in Acts would be pushed up then to 31 or 32 AD, once again falling short of the coveted 33 number. Bummer for Freemasons everywhere. Can't win them all, boys. Anywho, the 12 and the 70 were given 38 or 39 years to spread the gospel of the kingdom to the varying nations, to the ends of the earth, really, before judgment befell Babylon, which is the same thing as saying Yerushalayim. 70 spokesmen for Yahuwah's 70 nations, and 40 years to do it in. A very long time for anyone to run a ministry. Eventually, cities were destroyed. Others were rewarded. 
And perchance, after the dust had settled, the faithful left the craftsmanship of the places of the, the places and the cities they rebuilt, just as one might a set of tracks behind them. All right, moving on to page 15, the Church of Rome. Buried beneath the floor of the San Paolo Fiorori le Mura, sorry for my terrible Italian accent, Rome's second largest basilica is a stone coffin attributed to the Apostle Paul. There is also a cathedral attributed to Paul in London, which may play some importance where truth in plain sight is concerned, but more on that at a later time. Back in Rome, and some two kilometers from the old city walls by the road to Ostia, his supposed sarcophagus is situated directly beneath the main altar. There you will find a marble tombstone bearing the Latin words, uh, Paolo Apostolo Mart, meaning Apostle Paul Martyr. On a slightly side note, a recent excavation has shown his remains to be mysteriously missing. Uh-oh. Another note of interest is that San Paolo was victim to a great fire during the night of July 16, 1823, post-mud-flood demolition at work. Fact of the matter is, the set-apart assembly was flourishing in Rome long before Shaul thought to write them a letter, much less stop by for a visit. His own epistle attests to that fact. Aside from Shaul's reported beheading in the Nero-era city, the spiritual weight of his influence there has never really been established. Apart from having the second grandest basilica attributed to his name, that is, Shaul seemed to travel frequently, church-hopping without settling for residency in them. If we're playing the game of slapping the walls in a dark room, hoping for a light switch, then I'm guessing that Kifa had far more clout. Obviously, the Basilica speak to that effect, but even he may not have been the most, significant, uh, the most significant player in the Church of Rome. Contained within Shaul's epistle are a series of names, names speedily glossed over by most, names which have rarely been examined, and names which, if we stop to ponder them, may be giving clues as to why Rome maintained its prominence during the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah. Well, here they are. Salutes Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Mashiach before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in Yahuwah, salute Urbane, our helper in Mashiach, and Stachis, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Mashiach. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in Yahuwah. Salute... <laughs> How would you like to have the name Narcissus? <laughs> uh, oh, good times. Salute Tripina uh, and Tryphosa, who labor in Yahuwah. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in Yahuwah. Salute Rufus, chosen in Yahuwah, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, uh, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia Nereus and his sister and Olympus, and all the Kodashim which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The called out assemblies of Mashiach salute you. Romans 16, 8 through 16. Dizzying, I know. 
also hard to pronounce a lot of them. I counted 21 names and as many as 23 people in several short verses, not including entire households. Of the 12 members that Shaul described as having contributed the most to the church, seven of those were women. Who are these people? That's what I've been doing with my time as of late, attempting to find out. I'll try to work my way down in an orderly fashion, top to bottom, mostly, highlighting what I can. Andronicus and Junia were married. No, Shaul doesn't outright define their relationship in black and white terms. What he does say, though, is that they were his kinsfolk, informing us that he was related to them. It doesn't take rocket science to figure that they were therefore also related to each other. That's not the only way he describes them, though. We then learn that they had done time in the joint. The reason probably has something to do with their being, quote-unquote, of note among the apostles. That means they were favored by the Yerushalayim group, Yaakov, Kifa, and the rest. Makes sense, since Shaul furthermore describes them as being in Mashiach before him. Andronicus and Junia go back to the very beginning. Remember how Yahushua commanded the 70 to go out two by two? Andronicus was counted among them. Back then, though, they went by different names. The Gospel of Lucas records the women, the women responsible for financing Yahushua's ministry. Well, guess who was listed among them? This comes from Luke again, chapter 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the good news of the kingdom of Elohim, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil ruachoth and infirmities, Miriam called of Migdol, out of whom went seven devils, and Yochana, the woman of Chuza, Herod's steward, and Shushana and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Gospel Luke 8, 1 through 3. Chusa and Yochana are the same couple. In Yehuda, they simply went by their Hebrew names rather than the, their Latin counterpart. When in Rome. The brief description given to us, however, is telling. Troubling, even. Chusa was involved with the Herods, and that's not good. The Sefer chronicles him as Herod's steward, while most translations simply say household manager. How much money would a household manager of Herod's make exactly? I'm imagining quite the penny. Normally, I would plant a red flag on that one. In fact, I already have a big, fat red flag. Herod was a financer of spooks. In the past, I have speculated if Shaul was purposely planted by the Herods, and so, seeing as how Shaul and Mr. and Mrs. Chusa are all related to the same royal dynasty, the case becomes even more unsettling. Perhaps Yochanan's close quarter with the Herods is why the evil Ruachoth and the infirmities which Lucas mentions are so important to this narrative. Yahushua had healed Yochanan of her demons when nobody else could, thus inciting her to believe in the kingdom of Elohim rather than the kingdom which her puppet king cousin was spinning. It is Yochanan who became one of Yahushua's financers, right alongside Miriam of Migdol and Shushana. I don't know who Shushana is, in fact nobody does, but Miriam of Migdol wasn't exactly a nobody. When it comes to the Melito Kingdom of Messiah, her narrative is central to all of this. Yochanan shows up again in Lucas, and when she does, she is standing right alongside Miriam of Migdol. And this is what we find again in Lucas. It was Miriam of Migdol and Yochanan, there she is, and, um, his two financers, and Miriam, the mother of Yaakov, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. Yochanan was right there with Miriam of Migdol when they broke the news to the apostles that Yahushua's tomb was empty. 
The other Miriam mentioned is Miriam Shaloma or Salome in English. I've already pointed out in my Miriam Magdalene, wife of Messiah paper, that she was the wife of Zavidi, making her Yochanan and Yaakov's mother, but also a third daughter of Yahusha's grandmother, Hannah. Everyone at that tomb was somehow related. I can't prove at present that Yochanan was a relative of Yahusha. It's simply a hunch. But if they were, then you know what that means, don't you? Shaul and Yahusha were also related through one marriage or another. Adronicus and Junia's relationship with the Herods may have played a crucial role in their decision to plant a congregation in the belly of the beast. They most likely had political connections there. I'm willing to bet some of the other names offered to us in Shaul's letter carry all sorts of leverage, even if most are unknown to us today. When I started out saying Kepha wasn't necessarily the biggest player in the Church of Rome, this is what I meant. As one of the 70, Adronicus and Junia didn't simply hold a good reputation among the apostles. The very power couple who headed up the first church in Rome had boots on the ground in Yehuda years earlier, financing the ministry of Messiah. The third to be greeted is Amplius. I checked. He too is listed among the 70. Eventually, Amplius attached himself to Kepha's brother, Andre, according to legend, and the two became martyrs. If you're wondering why we've suddenly switched to a picture of Constantine Noble, a 2,223-kilometer walking journey from Rome, it's because Andre is considered the founder and first bishop of the, of the Church of Byzantium. Byzantium. Are we looking at Andre's Grand Palace? Well, Andre appears to have sourced some of the people listed in Shaul's letter. Little to nothing is known about Urbane, or Urban, I don't know how to pronounce that, though it has been suggested that his name was commonly assigned to slaves, though he would have been a freedman. But then there is Stachis, another one of Andre's boys. Eusebius quotes Origen as saying that Andre had preached in Asia Minor and in Scythia along the Black Sea as far as the Volga and Kiev, hence he became a patron saint of Romania and Russia. That's a lot of ground he covered. It is said that Andre commissioned Stachis as a bishop of Byzantium in 38 AD. His office lasted until 54. What I should have done in relation to Amplius and his office of bishopric is show a picture of the cathedral they've got erected in Bulgaria. I'm not saying it's his. The Byzantine temple is a curiosity piece, though, seeing as how it is considered one of the 50 largest churches in the world. They tell us it was erected in 1882, but I'm not so sure about that. I tried looking for construction photos on this one. I couldn't find anything. Following Stachis is somebody named Apelles. I checked. He, too, is numbered among the 70. But not only that, Andre once again rendered his services. Apelles was commissioned as the bishop of uh, Her Heraclea in Trachis. Seems like Andre was calling on Kepha to send help whenever a new congregation needed its shepherd, and Rome was well stocked. Next on our list, Shaul relates that Herodion was another one of his kinsmen, which means Andronicus and Junia were also related, and as I've already suggested, perhaps Yahusha too. Even his name, Herodian, reeks of the Herods. It's why I decided to perform another background check, and wouldn't you know it, Herodian is counted among the 70. 
Tradition holds that he became the Bishop of Patras via Andre, and that at some point he was beaten, stoned, stabbed, and then left for dead. Apparently he survived. After Andre met his fate in Greece, Herodian served alongside his brother Kepha. Another person listed in Shaul's letter is Olympus. It turns out that Herodian and Olympus were beheaded in Rome on the very day that Kepha was crucified. The mere fact that they were beheaded tells us uh, that Herodian was a Herod and that at a minimal, Olympus was a citizen of Rome. I checked. Olympus was one of the 70. Shaul only asked that the household of Narcissus be greeted in his letter to the Romans, telling us that Narcissus was out and about somewhere in the world and that Shaul knew about it. Big surprise. He appears to have been helping Andre out at the time. His household, however, was planted in Rome, telling us once again where the affluence was. Oh, so I checked. The 70 list Narcissus in its ranks. Little is known about Tryphena and Tryphosa. It is often assumed that they were sisters. Their connection to Thecla, however, makes far more sense. Thecla was a strict follower of Shaul, particularly his teachings on virginity. No time, no time to go into that now. You can do your own homework and read the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Tradition holds that uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa were somehow associated with Thecla in that all three were virgins, which makes sense, especially since Shaul thought to mention them together and without the association of any man in particular. Persis is mentioned immediately after the sisters, the difference being that Shaul calls her a beloved and insists that she had already labored much in Yahuwah past tense. Seems to me that all three had worked closely with Shaul in the past, Persis more than any of them, though. There are connections to be made all throughout Shaul's greetings, and I'm only getting started. You will probably want to hold on to something for the next part, because when Shaul salutes Rufus as having been chosen in Yahuwah, he claims a commonality in Rufus's mother with his own. According to his own testimony, no woman led Shaul to embrace Yahusha's savior, and so it would be difficult to convince me that Shaul was simply referring to her as his spiritual mother in the faith. No, Shaul and Rufus had a common mother. If you need this spilled out for you, they were brothers. But that's not the trippy part. I did some digging, and what I found may send some of you into a tailspin. Are you still holding on to something? Maintaining balance is key. Here it goes. And they compel one Shimon, a Cyrenian, uh, who passed by coming out of the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. The Gospel of Mark fifteen twenty one. The person chosen to carry the cross of Messiah always comes across like some random dude in the crowd. Marcus, however, thought it important to name him a certain Shimon the Cyrenian. Why would he do that? Unless Shimon was a somebody, then I figure that still wouldn't have rung a bell for most of his contemporary readers. It's likely why he included his two children, Alexander and Rufus. I can't speak for Alexander at the moment, but Rufus appeared to be a somebody, a somebody who planted his bum in the Church of Rome. If you're chugging along on with the, logic, with the uh, logical choo-choo, Shimon may have also had a stepson named Shaul. Now, I'll just quickly reiterate this here that Marcus, or Yochanan Mark, John Mark, uh, he was in the Church of Rome with uh, Peter 
And uh, so he would have known Rufus personally, which is probably why he mentioned him. You know, that the guy who carried the cross or the, the, the crossbar. Oh, by the way, he had a son named Rufus, the guy I know in Rome. Continuing. Uh, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrovas, and Hermes are all numbered among the 70, serving as bishoprics over one city or another mostly in Greece and modern-day Bulgaria, probably as a result of Andre's astonishing work in the field of church planning. Amazing. Nearly every single person listed were either close kin of Shaul's, probably even of Messiah, numbered among the 70, or both. Here is another list listed among the 70. Philologus. I feel like I'm pronouncing dinosaur names tonight. Philologus. And if his membership is not enough, he too was selected by Andre as the bishop of a city along the Black Sea. Again, we must ask ourselves why so many of those who were personally selected by Yahusha before his crucifixion would run to Rome, going so far as to organize the spread of the kingdom gospel from there if the capital city were indeed a lion's den. Seems to me like Rome hasn't been given due credit. One last name on Shaul's list is also of interest. Neris is mentioned along with his unmarried sister. There is a basilica in Rome which may indeed be attributed to him. Uh, Sante Nereo ed Aquilo. According to legend, Neris was a eunuch and a chamberlain of Flavia Dom Domitilla. Recognize the name? Well, it's okay. I didn't either at first. Flavia was a granddaughter of Emperor Vespasian and a niece of emperors Titus and Domitian. According to legend, Flavia is played off as an uh, Easter figure who stood up for Christians and the Yahudim when Domitian wanted them dead. And, and what we do know about, just side note here about Domitian is, uh, I'll be talking about this in another paper, he tried to eliminate the Messianic uh, lineage. He, he wanted them dead, the sons of David. And he specifically looking for any... Uh, close siblings of Yahushua HaMashiach. It is Eusebius who later writes that the same Flavia Domitilla was exiled with many others to the island of Pontia in consequence of their stand for the faith. Nerus was among them. Later on, Nerus and another eunuch named Achilles were beheaded in uh, Teresina and then buried on an estate of Domitilla in Rome, seeing as how she too was exiled. That is where her basilica now stands, at the site of his burial. No telling if Neris was a eunuch when Shaul wrote his letter, but you can see how the laymen of that church were involved in all manners of society, leading us on an investigative trail all the way to the Caesars. Speaking of aristocratic society, Shaul's mentioning of Claudia in 2 Timothy takes us there. All indications point to Claudia being a noble-born woman, uh, Roman, seeing as how the name was apparently only given to the silk stockings and, and courtly type. We'll get to her in a moment, though, because there are other names mentioned in his prison letter, and, and they are all of interest, these two in particular. Only Lucas is with me. Take Marcus and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. 2 Timothy 4.21 This is the same letter, by the way, where he mentions Everyone has deserted him during his time of need, except for Lucas. Lucas, you already know about, though. I will leave 
up to the reader any suspicions as to why the Church of Rome thought it in their best interest to abandon Shaul, leaving him only to his house arrest and biographer. Was it because the Church of Rome deemed Shaul a false teacher? I don't know. I wasn't there. Some likely did. It's these sort of open discussions which are hard to come by. Certainly, a large debate amongst the 40-year generation leading up to the temple's destruction seems to be on the matter of circumcised eating with the uncircumcised goyim. Just because Kepha had a vision on the matter doesn't mean everybody immediately knew about it or accepted it for that matter. The very fact that he would request for Marcus makes it difficult for me to conclude that everybody among the Yerushalayim group thought that way. This is the same Marcus the Evangelist, mind you, who wrote the Gospel of Marcus. I checked. The Bishop of Alexandria was one of the 70. And anyways, who did he hear the Gospel story from but Kepha? The two were acquaintances because they were related. Yes, that's right. Yochanan Marcus was a cousin of Barnabas. And I haven't gotten to this part yet, but Barnabas was Kepha's uncle. Makes sense then why Kepha would go to Miriam's house after escaping from prison in Acts 12. 12. This, this so-called Miriam was the mother of John Mark, Yochanan Marcus. And anyways, Shaul is requesting visitation rights from a member of Kepha's inner circle. Uh, leading up the name drop, Shaul mentions a certain Demas as having forsaken him over a love of the world. There is Alexander the coppersmith who has done him much evil and was apparently still floating around in one congregation or another. He also mentions his boy, Titus, as having been sent to Dalmatia. FYI, that was another church started by Andre. Its bishop was Hermes, one of the 70. I already mentioned him in the Roman letter. Well, here are the names. Do your diligence to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus greets you, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. That comes from 2 Timothy 4.21. Eubulus we know nothing about. Clearly, he was known to the greater swath of congregants at that time, or else he likely wouldn't have been mentioned. But then take a look at Pudens. Pudens was far from a nobody. I'm willing to bet every, everyone mentioned giving salutations there was a noble of some sort. Turns out, Pudens was the son of a certain Quintus Cornelius Pudens, a Roman senator, and his wife, Priscilla. Pudens himself wasn't your typical son of a senator, either. It appears as though he was a Roman centurion. Pudens' wife, Claudia, is by far the most interesting person of the bunch, as she appears to be a princess. Her father was the king of southern Britain and went by the name Cogidubnus. Uh, <laughs> before being conquered by Emperor Tiberius. Afterwards, he became a client king of Rome and went by the name of Tiberius Claudius Cogidubnus. <laughs> There's those dinosaur names again. It's awful. And tribute to the emperor. As you can see, his daughter was also named in honor of the emperor. And it's through, king, uh, through the king of Britain, and probably even his prince's daughter, where the gateway to the millennial kingdom opens up in Britain. One thing at a time, though, because we are still we are still detailing the Church of Rome, and it is clear that Claudius settled down there. The Latin poet Marshall was a good friend of Pudens. We are often told that Marshall would have been too young to have known this Pudens and Claudia, but that is just like the scholars stretching out the events and dates in the early centuries. They will claim that Yochanan wrote Revelation in the 90s and Clement his epistle around the same time, when clearly both were written before the War of the Yahudim in the 60s. 
See what I mean? Another speculation of mine is that both wars of the Yahudim were, in fact, the same war. Just copy and paste. Marshall was also a friend of the uh, friend of Seneca, or I should say, the Seneca family, which is extremely important in this, as this all ties in with Shaul. Seneca was a Roman Stoic philosopher and a statesman who served as a tutor to Nero of all people, and then as his advisor. There are eight known epistles written from Seneca to Shaul and six replies from Shaul. Today, they are held as forgeries, but there was a time when they were held to be legitimate, and it appears as though the church has successfully suppressed them through their ingenious dating techniques. The thing about Seneca is that he fell out of favor with Nero and, rather than succumbing to suspicions, took the honorable way out, which is to say, suicide. And as you can imagine, the entire episode backfired on Shaul, who was thusly given the axe treatment. Anyways, getting back to Marshall, the marriage of Claudia to his friend Pudens was celebrated in the poet's wedding song, known as a um, epithalamium, and it, it's a wedding song, and it goes as follows. I'm not going to sing it for you. Although born among the blue-eyed Britons, how fully has Claudia Rufina the intelligence of the Roman people? What beauty is hers? The matrons of Italy might take her for a Roman, those of Attica for an Athenian. The gods have kindly ordered that she proves fruitful to her revered husband, and that, while yet young, she may hope for her son, for son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws. May heaven grant her ever to rejoice in one single husband, and to exult in being the mother of three children. As you can see, Claudia was described as one born among the blue-eyed pagans, specifically the Britons, although she maintained all the intellect of the Roman people or even the Athenians. Marshall goes on to praise the local Elohim of those parts, or plural, and it is evidence that neither Pudens nor Claudia had converted yet to the faith. Here is what we know. Pudens was converted to the faith before Shaul came to Rome, and for clarification, by somebody else other than Shaul. It is Kepha who is accredited as having converted the two while in Rome. In fact, the senator and his wife may have been the first to host a congregation. It has long been said that Kepha stayed in their home and that he baptized the entire family, including their children. The other name you may have noticed in Shaul's second letter to Timothy is Linus. He can be found wedged between Pudens and Claudia, suggesting that they were indeed a family unit. Linus became a bishop of Rome, ordained not by Shoal, but by Kepha. The Roman Catholic Church lists him as the second pope of Rome, again after Kepha, indicating that he was leading what would become Roman Catholicism, but we'll let that slide. In his mortal life, Linus would likely be reduced to abdominal to abdominable pain at the mere mention that he would later be attributed to one of Rome's popes. How convenient of our controllers to award him the papal succession trophy only decades or centuries after his passing. Pudens and Claudia had other children as well, daughters. The Basilicas Santa Pudenziana and Santa Prasidi are found in Rome, and as the name suggests, are attributed to them. Um, again, the name uh, Prudenza <laughs> Prudenziana and Prasidi, uh, testimony to their service for the kingdom, no doubt, and potentially in the kingdom as well. All right, we're moving on to the next part. 
the Church of England. And this will be actually a preview of what I hope to establish um, next. So this isn't all written. This is just the beginning part of England. But I really wanted to have this ready to show the connection between Rome and England because I think it's I find it really fascinating. There is great debate as to who founded the Church of Merry Old England. Mind you, it is not the identities of its founders being contested, but rather who it was that landed on the cliffs at the Cliffs of Dover first. On our last go-around, I purposely left Aristobulus off the list of those mentioned in Shaul's epistle to the Romans. And no, I wasn't snubbing him. It is only because I'm not a fan of eating the icing before the cake. With Aristobulus, we are also given the cherry on top. Think back. Do you remember how Shaul referred, uh, referred him? Salute them, which are of Aristobulus's household. Shaul didn't ask for Aristobulus to be saluted, only his household. That could only be because Aristobulus had departed for Britain by then, and everybody knew it. Claudia likely had a part to play in organizing his trip. It is also a very good guess that Aristobulus set sail for the British Isles because word had reached Rome, again through Claudia's family, that Joseph of Arimathea and Maryam Magdalene had arrived. And there you have it, the founders of Christianity in Britain. And then, of course, I put a lot of pictures here of Oxford. Brings back good memories. How do you even sum Oxford up into five pictures? It can't be done. While traveling through Europe, my wife and I stayed in Oxford for an entire month. Never mind the sheer number of inheritors and controllers who employed Oxford as their choice base of operations. Despite the stench of its alum alumni, I can tell you from firsthand experience that Oxford is one of the most heavenly cities upon the earth. But also, I am only choosing one city in all of Britain as an example. Never mind the fact that London is the current financial center of the world and on par with the Vatican by way of controllers. Is that any coincidence? The pristine beauty of a more civilized and advanced age could be found everywhere on the island. Clearly, the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah made a name for itself there. The reason why is rather straightforward. Everything that we can find in the record books tell us that Britain was the first geographical location to offer Christianity as a state-sponsored religion. Even Rome doesn't deny it. That is to say, Joseph of Arimathea and Miriam of Migdal arrived very early on. How early? We shall go over that soon enough. The locals heard their message, and they embraced it as their own. I will show you documentation of that fact in a little while. Actually, not in this presentation, but it will be in this paper in a little while. But in the meantime, stop and ponder the magnitude of their success. Though Yehusha was rejected as king of Yerushalayim, Migdal was capable of claiming him the king of Britain. It is for this reason that Britain was so greatly rewarded, in my opinion. Moving on to page 34. In his letter to Rome, Shaul never refers to Aristobulus as Aristobulus of Britannia. And yet, that is what, is what he is called. I checked. The first bishop of Britain was one of the 70. Those aren't even the beginning... Uh, of his qualifications, though. Aristobulus was not only a Levite, but he was also Kepha and Andre's father-in-law. I probably should have warned you before dropping that little nugget several pages earlier. Oh, but there's more. His brother was Barnabas, who, according to the Clementine homilies, is a stand-in for the apostle Matthias. Either way, Yochanan Marcus is a cousin. 
His relations don't end there either. Tradition has long held Aristobulus and Zavidi to be the same person. That would not only mean Aristobulus was the father of the apostles Yaakov and Yochanan, his wife was the Virgin Miriam's sister, Miriam Shaloma. That would make Yochanan and Kepha in-law brothers and cousins to Messiah. Aristobulus was Yahusha's uncle-in-law. Yahusha's entourage was nearly all related. You may be asking why any of this is important. Well, for one, this was kingdom business. And as you would expect of nearly any duke or duchess, blood is thicker than wine. Knowing now that he was the father of Andre, Shaul's nod to um, a, a syncret, uh, syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, and Hermes, as well as Urban, Stachis, Ampliatus, Apelles, and Narcissus cannot be casual. And I should have said father-in-law, not father. Excuse me. What isn't known about Aristobulus is his fate. He was older than everyone, with the exception, perhaps, of Joseph of Arimathea, and so would have succumbed much sooner by default. Some claim he was martyred in Wales, but the general consensus is that he died in peace, like Miriam of Migdal and Yosef. But you probably already know what I'm thinking. If Aristobulus or the other two mentioned lived to the 40 years out, then Yahusha very likely came for them. Those were his promises to that generation, and I have already written about it. If Aristobulus did succumb to age, then it is thought to have happened at Glastonbury Abbey. Yes, you heard me right. Glastonbury Abbey, the one and only. Aristobulus was the first bishop of Britain, and the keys to Glastonbury dangled from his belt, right next to his Levite tizits. Right next to his Levite tizits. Glastonbury has since been destroyed at the hands of our controllers like so many other cathedrals across the realm. But as you can see by the mock-up above, it was at one time glorious to behold, as we would expect of a Millennial Kingdom structure. Glastonbury, though, do I need to spill this out for you? The father of Yochanan and Yaakov, and the brother of Barnabas, as well as the uncle of Yahusha Hamashiach, has just been identified as having inhabited the very grounds which sponsors the gravesite of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. That's it for this paper for now. Um, hopefully in the next part, I'll continue on with Britain and also France and showing, you know, all the, the travels there and why I believe that the kingdom was so glorious in those places. Uh, we, we see places, just in re quick recap, we see places... Uh, I did the presentation, the, the video, as well as a paper showing uh, all the places that, that melted from fervent heats. And they, they weren't really repopulated. They weren't built upon. Uh, they were abandoned. And then we see other places where, you know, it, it was thriving. And that's my theory, that the places where the kingdom was accepted openly um, and that, you know, the, the, the saints lived there and, and served him, those are the places that were rewarded the most. So... That's it for tonight.